Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, The Golden Flea, A Story of Obsession and Collecting, Michael Rips takes us into the magical world of the Chelsea flea market with a memorable cast of characters who create an uncommon community centered around, quote, a consumptive engagement of the unknown. And along the way, Mr. Rip provides some fascinating lessons in art and design history. His book is published by W.W. Norton and Company. I'm very pleased to welcome Michael Ripps to our show now. Hello. Hey, Leonard. How are you? I'm well, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, sequestered in a small room in my home. Uh, for listeners Indeed. for listeners who have not uh, visited it, where was the Chelsea Flea Market located? The Chelsea Flea Market really described a constellation of open air markets, garages, parking garages, empty warehouses in Chelsea. Uh, really Before Chelsea night. became the hot place Chelsea. for art? Exactly, exactly. So, so before Chelsea was the hot place for art and real estate was relatively inexpensive uh, and nobody in the parking lots on the weekends, uh, flea markets opened up and there were literally, uh, you know, hundreds of vendors, thousands of vendors and tens of thousands of people every weekend visiting these garages and parking lots. Did you, were you ever there, Leonard, at any? Of yes, those? I was, of course. Oh, good. But in its heyday, uh, as you say, the market was pretty big. Why was it called the Annex Market? Uh, I think that that was just a corporate title that was given to it by the people who owned it. One, there was one person who uh, organized the entire flea markets and has the remaining. Well, he was just uh, ejected from the remaining market. But yes, I think it was just a um, a corporate title. At one time, what? didn't people dress in outlandish outfits when they went to to the flea? Uh, uh, it began in oh. 1976. Was it already? Uh, a, a destination place at that time pretty much immediately and it was it was it was outlandish it was a circus it was a, a, a form of performance art um and that was a combination of things one because fit was down the street so you had all of the kids from fit who were studying there studying to be designers uh who were in the flea markets looking for materials and inspiration for their designs uh you had older fashion designers and artists who were visiting the flea in the tradition of uh, the surrealist in paris who every day breton and others who visited the flea there and then on top of that you had the wonderful fact that at the time that you and I are talking, there were these underground clubs in Chelsea, and they were letting out early in the morning, which is exactly when the flea opened. So there, it, it was outrageous and uh, continued to be so. And then you had the artists. You had Andy Warhol and others who were, who were in there, uh, again, looking for materials for their art. What did you look for when you were wandering around? Oh, I just, well, I was an artist. Uh, yeah, I know. You stud studied under Rothko and Reinhardt, right? Yeah, among others. And I went to art school in, in London as well. And then I realized that I just didn't have that extra thing that would have made me into the artist I wanted to be. So I moved on. Uh, you mentioned Andy Warhol. In fact, the New York Times and uh, the, the New York Post both headlined their stories on the closing 
of the market by noting that Andy Warhol used to shop there. Although I'm told by one of the people who uh, had a booth there that actually Warhol had a personal picker named Ronald Lofgren who, who came in and did the picking for him. Yeah, I think he did. He did picking for sort of personal items for mm. Warhol. But Warhol was there with Stuart Pivar and others, uh, you know, every weekend for years looking uh, for things. Um, so vendors tell me that he was he was sort of a constant presence in the in the Chelsea Flea. Now the the market was open on Saturdays and Sundays, but more on Sundays the real big social event when the celebrities and the people from the creative world came to the market? Yes, yes, exactly. So it was the, the flow into the market was, was pretty much segmented. Sundays were the big event um, in the flea market uh, for celebrities and designers, et cetera, et cetera. But for pickers and people who were buying to resell items in their shops on Madison Avenue or in Soho, uh, the time to come was really late Friday night or, or, or very, very early Saturday morning. Uh, so you got the vendors as soon as they were unloading their trucks. And a lot of the pickers, crowds of pickers would gather around the vendors' trucks, and there would be kind of an auction even before the materials got off the truck. As soon as that truck door opened, the pickers were shouting uh, prices at the at the vendors. So, and, and, um, and what were the pickers in particular? Because a group of people were given that specific name. Yeah, so the pickers the pickers are people who are in the flea to identify items which are underpriced. Uh, typically, a picker will specialize in something very, very specific, um, art glass or, um, you know, uh, beaded, you know, beads from the 19th century or costume jewelry. And, you know, or, you know, 19th century paintings of dogs and horses. Mm -hmm. And those those pickers will go quickly through the flea. They'll find the items that they're looking for, purchase them and then take them and immediate pretty much immediately turn around and sell them to a retail store or to specific customers who are interested in those items. Uh, Sometimes some of the pickers who you see in the flea will turn around and sell in the flea, though that's quite controversial uh, because they're not paying rent. Now, why was the the uh, flea market closed? Uh, although uh, the owners of the Brooklyn flea have planned to reopen it, uh, had until the coronavirus put everything on hold. The flea markets, that constellation of uh, markets that I was talking about, gradually started to close before Chelsea became what it is today, um, and under the under the force of slaughter of the um, hotels and residential towers and big stores, luxury stores that came in and filled those empty warehouses and markets, it was really real estate prices in Chelsea. Uh-huh. But the Brooklyn Flea uh, decided, which has been specializing in winter fleas uh, at right. uh, they they were at uh, the old Williamsburg Savings Bank for years and then more recently at Barclay uh, Center. Um, they right. plan to reopen it and of course um, 
coronavirus has, put, as I said, has put everything on yeah, hold. Exactly. But should we I assume that it's going to open later this spring? Yes. Yes, from all I hear, it will reopen this spring on 25th Street between Broadway and 6th Avenue. It's right next to uh, the Serbian church, which uh, burned down a couple years ago, and they're now fixing. But it's a big lot. It's full of really interesting vendors, and vendors who have, as I point out in my book, are a community of people who've known each other now for 40 years. Well, how is the Chelsea flea different from the other flea markets in our area? Uh, there's a huge one in New Milford, Connecticut called the Elephant's Trunk. And then there's another one, the Golden Nugget Flea Market in Hopewell Township, New Jersey. Did uh, the same vendors go to the different markets? There is some, there is some crossover. Um, but I think the Chelsea vendors are a separate sort of ecosystem of vendors who have been together and and basically work from Friday afternoon when they're preparing their materials for sale and then driving into the city through uh, the end of the day on Sunday. And then during the week, they're looking for materials in whatever area they're in. Um, the Chelsea flea market has always been the premier flea market in terms of the goods that are offered. Um, and the reason for that is its proximity to the Chelsea warehouses. A lot of the best material for the Chelsea flea and the best material anywhere in the world comes out of the abandoned storage units that mm. are in, in and around Chelsea. Those big buildings right on the Hudson River, mm -hmm. right? You don't pay your uh, rent for those units after a certain number of months, they have the right by contract to auction off the units. So there's a whole sub-world, sub-community of people who regularly circulate amongst the Chelsea warehouse, storage warehouses and are buying um, out the contents of those units and then reselling a good share of those at the Chelsea flea market. You say that... Uh... The Romanian... For example, David oh, Killen, David Killen, who was a, a vendor in the flea market and has now set up a uh, small but fascinating auction house in Chelsea under his own name. You know, he, he just this year, uh, Leonard sold, I think, close to $2 million worth of de Koonings and other artists that came out of a storage facility. I think he paid in Chelsea, I think he paid 15000 for it. He didn't know when he bought that storage unit that what was in it, it turned out six de Kooning paintings. Now, uh, de Kooning had uh, a lot of imitators. Uh, have the paintings been authenticated? There was nobody who was willing to authenticate, officially authenticate the paintings. Uh, but as you know, that's not uncommon these days. The days of experts authenticating paintings is pretty much over. The reason being uh, those experts, if somebody's disappointed with the painting, turns around and sues the expert for a misidentification of the painting. So, so a lot of the shops and foundations that I identified that authenticated paintings have uh, closed down. They won't do it anymore. So but I assume... Now, well, go ahead. David sold sold one of the de Koonings for a million. One, it was a de Kooning on paper sold for a million dollars. Wow. And I'm assuming that the citizens of the flea uh, had a very strong responses to that discovery. 
<laughs> and what would you anticipate that would be, Leonard? Well, it would mean that there'd be a, a buying frenzy, wouldn't there? Uh, yes. I, and, and I think they felt vindicated. I mean, yeah. the vendors in the flea are the attitude by the public toward vendors in the flea is these are down and out people. They're undereducated. Some are, you know, bumpkins from the from the countryside. And if they're not in that category, then they're kind of grifters who are misrepresenting themselves and what they're selling. Um, and and that's radically unfair. Really is, and my book is a defense of these people and the sophistication of the intuitions of these people, and in some sense, the very specialized education of these people, although uh, self-educated, and 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 of the kind of ethics of these people. So so um, I think all of these people, when David sells the decooning for a million dollars, I think. And he's very much part of their community. He comes out of it. Everybody was joyous. And there, when the hammer came down, everybody was dancing in his little auction house. It was, it was fantastic, joyous. You say that the Romanian poet Paul Celan played uh, a role in or a part in, in your discovery of fleas. But he uh, he died of, he committed suicide in 1970 before the uh, Chelsea flea even opened. <laughs> he, he he did indeed. Uh, he has been an obsession of mine for some time. It's it's interesting, and he's very little discussed or read. And probably you can explain that better than I can. Well, he had so many fact, different places that he lived. That's part of the problem. I mean, he was yeah, Romanian, but he spoke German, and then uh, to, he had to he moved to France. So, um, well, you he, are he, a authority. This is interesting. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm an authority. I just. But he's a fascinating uh, character. I'm well read. Yes. Yeah. He, so how did he? Know, how did he help you discover fleas? He helped me discover fleas because I became fascinated with him. Sort of left my job, uh, what I was doing, and decided to uh, start a, uh, start studying Salon, and ultimately with the hope of writing a play about Salon and. Um, and his career and his poetry. He probably uh, you were an attorney. Uh, yes, I was an attorney. Um, I worked for years while writing for the New York Times and the New Republic and other places, but always, always sort of op editorial size, essay size pieces. I then, my wife was pregnant, who's an artist, uh, quite a great sculptor and painter, and we decided to. Uh, go off to Italy, and I gave up my job and started writing. And right now, um, recent last couple of years, I've been running the Art Students League. You're the executive you're, director. I'm the executive director where your friend Mark Rothko was a student. But he was, by the way, I have to say this, great artist, terrible teacher. Oh, is that true? Yeah. <laughs> well, he, uh, he, he was teaching, this was at Hunter Grad School, uh, the last year of his life. In fact, he committed suicide in midterm. And uh, his assistant, who uh, had brought him to Hunter's because he was uh, kind of depressed and he said, you know, you should get involved in things. He came into the, the class uh, a month later. We had now had a different teacher. Uh, he, he said to the, the class, well, I hope you're satisfied. So... <laughs> 
he was blaming us for Rothko committing suicide. I'm still living with that. <laughs> and by that time, he's already a celebrity, basically. Oh, he was, yeah, he was a superstar, an art superstar. He, yeah. he didn't have to teach. He was only teaching because he was going through a divorce and other things. He was a depressive, as it is. Um, let's get back to you. Uh, the first thing you ever purchased was a, a real buy, wasn't it? A Dan Flavin autographed electric light? Yes, out of a, a garage sale in St. Louis. And that's really what sent me into the flea markets. Uh, I was utterly against collecting anything. And, and I would say many people would now consider me a hoarder. Uh, and I attack that idea. I attack the dichotomy between collectors and hoarders. In fact, reject the, those, that terminology but you say that you say in the book that it's because you grew up in in Nebraska that you you weren't going to be a collector for a long time, but you kind of look down on secondhand things. Yes, I think what happens is as you move westward, as the population moved westward, they became this is sort of Frederick Jackson Turner. They became they sort of scaled off um, the kind of pretensions of the East Coast and the associations of the East Coast with Europe. And and by the time they get to Omaha, Nebraska, my family, it's really kind of a frontier town, if you will. And the idea of collecting, you know, empire furniture or Byzantine paintings seems terribly uh, elitist and is not in keeping with that culture. There's also the fact that one... I, my two uncles, one was killed in World War II, the other was seriously wounded in World War II. So there's an association, I think, with Europe and the old country that is not, is not entirely happy. Um, so my family's out in Nebraska, and, and they're happy not to be collecting antique furniture and antique rugs from Europe or even the East Coast, and they give themselves over to sort of a modernist, minimalist uh, aesthetic. But Dan Flavin was not a European. Uh, did you, was he, uh, the seller unaware of the fact that he had, who he was and that he had signed the, the, the light bulb? I, I, th I think they were the people who were selling it uh, were unaware of it. Yeah, I think mm. they had been given it or they had stopped in the St. Louis Museum and this young Dan Flavin, I mean, it was one of his first exhibitions, was sitting there signing posters. And uh, and the, the funny thing is, he, as you know, he did neon light sculptures. Yeah. And the, per the name of the people who stood before him to have their poster signed was brilliant. So uh, it's a wonderful inscription. Now, you then were actually hired to represent the Dan Flavin estate. Was that Indeed. directly connected? Yes. Uh, bizarrely, accidentally. Um, I'm sitting at my desk as a young lawyer, and somebody called up, and he identified himself as the head of the DR Art Museum. And he said, I need somebody to represent an artist's estate, and I'm going to give you the name of the artist, and if you can tell me anything about <laughs> him, you're hired. And he had already called a number of others, and he said, the name is Dan Flavin. I said, well, as a matter of fact, I just have this poster from one of his early exhibitions. And, you know, uh, uh, and, and that, that, Leonard, is a 
theme of the book, which is the uncertainty that you find in flea markets, the juxtaposition, wild juxtaposition of unexpected items and unexpected juxtapositions. And that's what's so in, inspired the surrealists to be in the flea markets mm-hmm. and inspired their work and their poetry. And so, which led me ultimately to Salon. But, but it's the ultimate idea of the book is that we have driven ourselves away from the idea of uncertainty. We have come to fear it. And as a result, we're in denial about uncertainty and we are ill prepared for it. Um, as we are, we're ill prepared for this virus, despite the fact that people had predicted this and, and the flea market is an antidote to that. The flea market is a way of experiencing uncertainty and seeing pleasure and imaginative leaps, spiritual leaps in uncertainty. And that's, that's, you know, a big part of it. Well, how is unknown? Yeah. Well, how is the Arts Institute dealing with the coronavirus shutdown? Isn't it difficult to teach art through Zoom? It's a brilliant insight. Yes, it's very difficult to do it. Nobody has done it particularly well before the Art Students League began to tackle it. And we are in the middle of that engagement. And we already have classes online. And we are creating what we call an atelier, where we are... Um, an atelier, I like that. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. And it will go out to the world um, shortly. But... W- we're creating an atelier for you in your home with our instructors, which involve individual critiques, which involve models. Um, and we are terribly, terribly excited about it. Getting back to your book uh, and some of the things that you reveal in it, uh, didn't an antiques dealer in Damascus recommend the Chelsea flea market as the best place to buy, buy rugs, not a flea market in Damascus? Well, exactly. So what he said is, when I asked him that same question, what he said is, look, everybody in Damascus knows and appreciates rugs, fine rugs. He says the people who don't appreciate rugs, uh, fine Oriental rugs or, or Middle Eastern rugs, Central Asian rugs, are the people in the United States who inherited those rugs from their grandparents. Their grandparents, right, in in the early 20th century to even the mid-20th century, would go on these tours, vacations, to these exotic places, to Egypt and Damascus and and Beirut, for example. Uh, And they would, as a souvenir, buy a rug or two rugs or three rugs. Those rugs, when they bring them back to America, they'd be passed down for a generation or two. And then people like myself, who didn't particularly like that aesthetic and found it too complicated to figure out the date and type of rug, would simply sell it off or give it away to a thrift store. And the pickers would come in, find it and then sell it in the uh, to vendors in the Chelsea fleet. So you can get, according to this Damascus rug dealer, 
much better rugs at a much better price in America than you can anywhere in the Middle East. But so what about the first once or twice a year? Yeah. What about the first edition books and paintings that you found there? Um, yeah. The, I guess the, the younger generation must have understood the value of a first edition book. Yes, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Though you see more and more books as everything goes online in the in the flea markets. If you're a record dealer or a book dealer, it's quite a great place to find things. Um, online, you mean? Well, no, in the flea markets, because people oh, yeah. are reading online and, you know, dumping their physical books. So, But isn't much of the business uh, that flea markets uh, engage in now being done on the Internet, on, on websites like eBay? Absolutely. And um, clearly there's a threat to flea markets from eBay and other sites. Um, there is, and I suggest this in the book however you know nothing like being in the middle of the flea market it's a it's a community it's an ecosystem of people also taking it in your hand objects. seeing yeah. it firsthand not not on a screen that's important right. isn't it oh absolutely i agree entirely you know uh books and paintings and sculpture and also, you know, the vendors tell stories about them and, you know, whether or not the story is entirely accurate or not, that attaches itself to these objects, you know, and, and sharing that experience with other people and, and, and seeing what else is around and discovering things that you might normally not be looking for is a big part of the flea market. And you don't get that online. That same dealer who shows you a first edition of a book might also have a arts and crafts vase, right, or a rug or something else and uh, and lead you down a path that you never anticipated. A friend uh, who was a vendor at the Chelsea Flea for 20 years and also at the Brooklyn Fleas in the wintertime, he told me that uh, also there were changes of taste from one generation to another. So for a t long time, customers came looking for Danish modern furniture. Later, clothing became his top sellers. <laughs> That's interesting. Yes, you do see, I have seen in the decades that I've been wandering around the Chelsea Flea, addicted to the Chelsea Flea, a big shift in what's available, you know. Um, what they call brown furniture, however valuable, um, which is antique furniture from England, France, the, the East Coast, sophisticated furniture, uh, which once sold for thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars, uh, is now never seen. And if you do see it anymore in the flea, it, you know, you can buy it for 60, a hundred dollars. Um, you, you are seeing a lot of vintage, uh, right. Vintage clothing now. On the other hand, there, uh, my friend told me about a vendor, uh, that who always sold out every week. Uh, and he never sold anything over a dollar. He was called Vic the Quarter. <laughs> yes, well, interesting. And in answered your earlier question, what makes the Chelsea flea different from other fleas? A big part of it is the turnover. In other flea markets, you're often seeing the same thing week after week after week. At the Chelsea flea market, 
that's not considered appropriate for whatever cultural reason or economic reason. So every week it's a new experience of objects, a new set of stories, a new excitement about what you might find there. So it's a thrilling hive of people, collectors, vendors, hoarders, et cetera, around a whole new set of objects. And uh, I, again, I address that in in the book. But the turnover at the Chelsea flea is like none other in, uh, in any flea market that I've seen in the United States or abroad. And we'll go into more detail about that in just a moment. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. I forgot to mention that you could also buy a lot of records at the Chelsea Flea, uh, usually vinyl, and vinyl has come back into popularity. Uh, I'm speaking with Michael Rips, whose latest book is called The Golden Flea, A Story of Obsession and Collecting. It is published by W.W. Norton and Company. So you, so you started buying things at the Flea. Uh, do you remember the first things that you bought? thing that I bought in the Chelsea Flea was a essentially a dung sculpture. There's uh, African tribe tribes in West Africa who create what the Europeans, Americans call fetish objects. Mm-hmm. And those are those are not masks or other types of African sculpture that are used in ceremonies for purposes of reminding people what the particular ceremony is or uh, praising offered as a a symbol of praise to the gods. These objects are actually divinities. These, these objects are inhabited by gods and um, they're constructed from excrement, blood, uh, feathers, cloth, bones, etc. And they're added to their fed, if you will, um, along the way to increase their power and to uh, make them happy with the person who, in, uh, who's feeding them. So I started collecting those. Well, that's rather sophisticated. Were you studying up an art history? Because now uh, you're described at times as also an art historian. That's a that's a generous description of <laughs> of what of what I am. Certainly, the art students like. <clears throat> has given me, along with the other students there, tremendous education in art history. But I wouldn't describe myself as an art historian. I came at it, uh, Leonard, from uh, from college, where I took a number of courses in African history. And so I was familiar with 
the western part of Africa where these objects were made. And uh, it's interesting. You know those guys uh, who used to – I don't see them so much anymore – used to sell watches on the streets out of um, sure. suitcases? Mm-hmm. I used so, to live in Chinatown, and uh, they just lined the street, the Canal, uh, Canal Street. That's right. Did you ever buy anything from those guys? No. So those those people, those individuals, a lot of them came from a certain part of Africa, Western Africa, mm-hmm. and they came often. They came over from Africa with their families, and they kept certain objects or had objects stored back in Africa, mm-hmm. and those objects related to their tribal religions. And that part of Africa and the tribal religions in that part of Africa came under assault uh, by Christian missionaries and Islamic missionaries. And as people were converted or semi-converted to those religions, uh, a lot of the objects were destroyed or ordered to be destroyed. Um, And Many people, members of these tribes, instead of destroying them, would bury them or hide them in closets. And meeting some of these people who were selling the watches, I fell into discussion about these objects. And so I started collecting these objects because some of the tribal members were in or around the flea market at the time I first arrived there. And there are still... Even if you go to the 25th Street flea market when it reopens, you'll find three or four African art vendors. And some In fact, of guys- uh, a, uh, one of the great filmmakers of the world, is Vincent Benny, told me that the first time anybody recognized him when he was in New York was when he passed those guys selling stuff, sitting on rugs and selling stuff on the street. Right, exactly. That's hilarious and unfortunate. But, <laughs> but those guys who everybody dismisses, you know, are very, very sophisticated. Often they come from three, two or three generations of African art dealers in Africa. And they may be selling certain items that are just made and made for the tourist trade in Africa for, you know, I don't know, $20, $100 outside MoMA or on the sidewalks in Chelsea. But the fact of the matter is in some storage facility not very far away, they have really old, beautiful, important African art objects. And all you have to do is talk to them about it. And they'll take you to their storage facility and sit for hours discussing these objects. And and so I, I spent a huge amount of my time uh, in storage facilities where these um, West Africans kept their their uh, sculptures, and and you bought uh, stuff. How? Where did you keep things? You said uh, people were concerned that you might be a hoarder. Uh, did you? Yeah. Fam- how did your family react to the things that you brought home? Like things made out of dung. Well, my wife my wife was concerned because she thought some of them were actually moving around the room at their own volition. <laughs> So, so some of those I gave away. I think I gave one to the Brooklyn Museum, um, and then I started putting things in storage. I, I, I became bulimic. I was sort of, you know, uh, feasting 
on these objects and then, you know, retching them up into into some storage bin. Uh, so I talk about that in my book. When I asked my daughter the very question you asked me is, are you troubled by all these things that have uh, taken control of our apartment? She said, she said, and I quote, uh, I'm not as troubled by that as I am about a number of other things that have to do with you. So you know, I think it's relative. Yeah, she was a, your daughter, Nikolaya. She yes. uh, she wrote a, a memoir called Trying to Float, and uh, uh, she talked about uh, growing up at the Chelsea Hotel. Uh, she was and a guest on the show. Yeah, on, on another radio station that she'll go yeah. nameless. Uh, but exactly. uh, yeah, she. <laughs> that was a great interview. I really enjoyed talking with her. And uh, she enjoyed and she enjoyed it very much as well, and told me to say hello to you. Oh, good. Well, you you really got into it. You seem to have spent a lot of time babysitting booths for vendors, often after you just met them. Uh, was that a typical thing? I don't think. Yeah. You know what? There are some people who you saw around the foyer, like myself, who went there every uh, every weekend, um, who wanted to be a part of that community. They weren't necessarily buying every weekend, but they became that became their their kind of group of friends. It's like you know in Omaha going to like a bowling league or something, and and you know we watched out for the booths of the vendors so they could go get coffee or bite to eat or you know look around for things they wanted. To and weren't you once uh, assaulted just, in a booth that you were watching I while the vendor went out to eat? I was assaulted. Uh, there was a very sophisticated woman who had a booth. And it turns out that, you know, she was allegedly uh, scamming people or scamming people who consigned paintings to her. And I was grabbed by the neck and threatened by a fellow when she was out of the booth, uh, fortunate for her. Uh, yeah, so so it's, it's a somewhat dangerous, sketchy place, but that makes it all the more interesting, at least to me. But you also describe a colorful cast of characters, a, a real sense of community there. Um, in fact, didn't they help cover one another's medical expenses when that yes, became necessary? Yes, absolutely. They cover So when the flea markets first opened, as you say, you know, decades ago. Um, the, 1976. Yeah, when the, 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 place, the places that were given out for the vendors which to most were largely just parking spaces. You get this parking space, someone else gets this parking space. They were, they were assigned randomly and whoever showed up back then. And so the mixture of people were, you know, fallen aristocrats from Chicago and, you know, people from the countryside in Connecticut and, people who grew up in the ghetto of New York. And so there was this exotic mixture of people and they basically stayed together for the next 40 years and they struggled together and they often had affairs. They had children, they covered each other's medical expenses and um, they became very much a part of each other's lives, arguably the most important part of each other's lives uh, because a lot of them were single or displaced or, you know, they were Africans whose families still lived in Africa and they were here because this is where they could make some money. So like Jico, who had, what was his nickname for your daughter? 
<laughs> the old broad. <laughs> now, the um, old broad. what is your friend? What is your friend doing now? Is he still out in Brooklyn, or is he the friend who sold in the flea? He uh, still sells at fleas. He was selling at the Brooklyn Flea. And how did he get into it? What was his trajectory into the? the well, he's flea? also an artist, so um, he uh, wound up uh, collecting things to make for his art. And he started, since he was buying stuff from people uh, uh, who had interesting things, he started selling them as well. And uh, yeah, I said 20 years at the uh, at the Chelsea market. And then he was at, uh, for a while, he was down on, uh, what is it? One handsome place or the 10 handsome place. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the old Williamsburg savings bank. And uh, more recently, a number of other places in Brooklyn, including the Barclays center. Huh. Fascinating. Now, and he, and, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you about him and his story. And, and does, is, has he become close with some of the other people at the flea or some of the customers? Well, sure. They all, yeah. they're all next to each other. Right. <laughs> they, some of them, they get along in some cases. You also say to me, stay away from that guy. Uh, <laughs> right. Now, uh, how, there are people there who offer to give their expert advice to authenticate objects. How trustworthy are they? Well, you know, you learn to know the ones who are trustworthy. And there's sort of a selection process where the people aren't who aren't trustworthy get to be known, identified by people like your friend, and they will be weeded out. They will be sifted out. So, so those kind of people, through natural selection at the flea, are expelled from the flea, and the people who can be trusted by the vendors, essentially, and by the collectors and pickers remain in the flea, and they sort of wander around and you can for free ask their advice um, you mentioned a couple the the prophet the prophet and also yes. somebody named frank right right and were they, they trustworthy they, completely leonard completely trustworthy i mean I, everybody talks about you know authentication experts and auction houses and etc cetera, etc cetera. your average person in an auction house First, they don't depend upon authentication for their livelihood, right? They're going to get a salary, whatever they do. Maybe they look at, what, a couple a couple hundred objects a year. The people in the flea depend for their livelihood on accurate identification of objects. And they look at, you know, your friend probably looks at 10,000 objects yes. a year. And so they develop what's called an eye, you know, and an intuition for objects um, and that transcends and is deeper than any sort of formal education uh, that you might have, though that certainly helps. And, um, and I find them very trustworthy, really. Tr I mean, and in fact, a lot of what I have bought based on their uh, okay has turned out to be, you know, valuable. I'm speaking with Michael Rips. Uh, this is Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Uh, many of the vendors, like Paul, claim to come from aristocratic backgrounds. Did you believe them? <laughs> well, it, you know, it's funny because uh, that's right. A number of them would tell stories about how their, you know, their 
ancestors, immediate ancestors, were ambassadors or government officials or upper class figures in countries outside the United States or in St. Louis, in Paul's case, in Chicago, etc. And initially, of course, I dismissed this as being the fictions of people who were trying to uh, pump up sales and uh, get you. But they had to have good stories, didn't they? Uh, they Oh, I love the stories. Yeah, the the, the provenance of of the, the things they were trying to sell. Yeah, absolutely. You know, why do you have that? Oh, it's, it was in my family, my, mm. you know, great grandmother, you know, helped, you know, create this particular hospital in Oklahoma. And, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it, it's stories that you could never really check, mm. but wonderful stories. And that's one of the things that one collects in the flea market are stories like that. Well, it when- turns out in the case of Paul, whom you mentioned, at the end of the book, my God, he was an aristocrat. I mean, he was a strange character. And You attended his funeral. I go to his funeral, right? And I'm thinking, you know, he's going to be in some poor stretch of Pennsylvania somewhere. Well, the goddamn thing is in Greenwich, Connecticut. And it's like the Kennedys are there, the Vanderbilts are there, the Harrimans. I mean, it was, it was absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, uh, everything he said about himself turned out to be true. And he was this sort of mysterious figure in the flea market, uh, probably, you know, had trouble with alcohol and drugs, which led him uh, ultimately to the flea market. But the flea market ended up sustaining a person like this. And he found a community there and he found, you know, he found very close friends there. Uh, and it probably ultimately saved him. Um, and uh, yes, I did end up going to his funeral, and it was quite moving. He was one of the vendors who wasn't uh, weren't shy about shooing visitors they didn't like out of their booths. What made for a welcome customer? Oh, for Paul? Yeah, or or any of them who? Uh, why would they get get rid of some people just because they were annoying? Well, a lot of annoying customers in the world. Yeah, I think the thing that annoys vendors the most is when they read into the customer a condescension, a a feeling that um, either they are, as vendors, uneducated generally or uneducated in what they're selling um, and uh, trying to take advantage of customers that offends that offends them um, as well as the assumption that they are mispricing objects that that they are inflating the value of objects and that's actually pretty rare you can't be the kind of vendor that your friend is or have a sustained business in the flea market if you're lying about the value of your objects the other you want people to come back you want people to come back and you want the respect of other vendors because, as you say, they're like a foot away from you. They hear you, right? They know who you are. And, uh, and to be ripping people off – and by the way, a lot of your sales are to other vendors before the flea market opens. Um, so, again, like the person who pretends to be able to authenticate something and can't, 
so too a vendor who's ripping people off in a community like the Chelsea Fleet doesn't last very long in that community. It's sort of uh, self-policing, if you will. And Paul, is, Paul is fantastic. He everything he talked about was was sort of genuine. He would tell stories about this jacket or that pair of shoes. You know, so, and and you I, write that the people of the flea were thrilled to hear vendors tell stories of the migration of objects. Um, I'm that, sure some absolutely. of them were made up because oh, they no couldn't question. have known everything. No question. You know, they'd know bits and pieces, and then they <laughs> and then they would fill in fill in the gaps. But who the hell doesn't do that? Mm -hmm. I mean, what's, what story do I tell? What, you know, about my past or your past or, you know, something that happened a couple of years ago where we're not filling in uh, gaps in the story or, or telling things that we think are appropriate for the story that are, you know, never happened. Uh, you know, so why are we so rough on these guys? We don't have a lot of time, but I want to address two things uh, in, the, in the few minutes we have left. One is uh, about Ibrahim Diop, who you used to buy Boli from. I don't even know what Boli is. That's he stopped by an apartment to, excuse me? Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's these fetish objects I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, and Boli. he, he stopped by your apartment to, to, uh, close to midnight once. Yeah, so he's banging on the door at midnight. He sold me one of these fetish objects, which they call kind of generically Boli, B-O-L-I. And I suggest that everybody on the on the on the call here look that up. B-O-L-I, put in Boli, Mali, African, and you and you'll see these extraordinary things. So he's banging on the door. I open the door. My wife is traveling in who's I think Uzbekistan or some far away place, and he comes in. And he says, look, Michael, I'm, you know, Muslim, and I'm not supposed to believe in this stuff anymore. But you need to feed that bully. Right? You, you can't have that bully displayed without feeding it. Fine, I understand that in concept, but what does that actually mean? He said, well, it's very specific. Either you slaughter a chicken over the top of the bully and let the blood stream mm. down the sides of the bully, which would have explained the striations on the one which I bought from him, um, right? Or you can, you know, do the, the same with a goat. Uh, <laughs> and I said to him, well, I don't have a goat, and a chicken may be hard to live chicken at, you know, 12, 1 o'clock at night is going to be tough. Is there any other option? He says, well, okay. And then he sort of sheepishly says, the third option is you invite women who are friends of yours from your personal community to come and menstruate over the bully. Right? And he said, that should do the trick. So I call up my wife in the middle of the night. And I explain the situation to her, and I say, you, are there any of your friends who might be available for this? <laughs> and she, and she, she, she's a wonderful artist and, and has a fine, equally fine sense of humor. And she says to me, Michael, do you really want a congregation of menstruating <laughs> women in, in your apartment at this, at this hour? And uh, I assured her that that probably was a, a, a good admonition for me uh, not to do it. Uh, anyway, but I figured it out ultimately. But that's the power of these objects. That's the power of the 
something that I'm led to this peculiar phone call in the middle well, of the just night. one more minute. And I became very, I became very, very close with Ibrahim Diop and his family uh, over the years. Just one more minute. You also bought uh, a mysterious painting. Um, and uh, did it turn out to be of any real value? Yes. After decades of, of uh, relentless and comic research, uh, which is in the book, um, it turned out to be a very value, not valuable necessarily monetarily, but, but significant uh, historically painting because it came from the great painter Sam Francis. Oh, and it right. was one of his first paintings um, under under the uh, under the tutelage of David Park out in um, mm-hmm. in California. Uh, uh, Sam Francis, the artist, uh, had been a uh, in the in the uh, Air Force, and he was on a training mission, and the plane went down, and he essentially broke his back. He was in the hospital for you know months, if not a year, in a back full body cast. And he was terribly depressed. And his girlfriend from high school came along and said, look, you need to do something. And she went, found David Park, this great art instructor. And he came to Francis's bedside. And this soldier in a body cast uh, was lying there uh, face down. And, you know, they put canvas on the ground. Michael, I have to leave it there, unfortunately. Michael Ripps is also the the author of uh, books, Pasquale's Nose and the Face of a Naked Lady. Uh, The book we've been discussing is The Golden Flea, A Story of Obsession and Collecting, published by W.W. Norton and Company. Thank you so much for being on our show. Leonard, what a pleasure, really. And I hope to run into you and your friend in the reopened Chelsea Fleet. Yes. Let's hope we can go outside again. That brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Susie Stoltz who prepared this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to follow our show page on Facebook and Twitter. You can also visit our website, LeonardLocatedLarge.com, where there are links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to send me your comments about any of our shows, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. I'm continuing to broadcast from my home in the interest of social distancing, so please excuse any technical glitches that may occur. We hope that the show continues to engage you as we all have to wait out this very difficult period. We're preempted tomorrow for WBAI's all-day Earth Day special, but we hope you'll join us on Thursday when industrial hygienist Monona Russell will discuss the myriad public health issues that have arisen in the wake of the coronavirus. We'll see you then.